KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. When it comes to plastic surgery, some might immediately think of cosmetic procedures like breast augmentation, liposuction, or Botox. But really, that just scratches the surface when it comes to what falls under the umbrella of plastic surgery. Think reconstructive surgery, skin grafts, it's a long list. And amazingly, what we know is modern plastic surgery has its origins not really in a hospital or a lab, but rather the trenches of World War One. The oral surgeons and the general surgeons after the war came back and then founded the the specialty of plastic surgery, which combined both oral surgery and general surgery together. Dr. R. Barrett Noon was the first CEO of the American Board of Plastic Surgeons, chief of plastic surgery at Pennsylvania, Bryn Mawr, and Lankanaw Hospitals, and he is the author of From Trenches to Transplants, Changing Lives with Plastic Surgery. It's a fascinating book, and he looks at the way plastic surgery has changed through the years and how it's helped transform people's lives. He was seven years of age and lost his hands when he was two to an infection that destroyed his blood vessel. And now he's 14, playing baseball, playing a cello, and doing just fine. I'm Matt Leon, and today on KYW News Radio In Depth, we talk about the history of plastic surgery, how the practice has improved over the years, and what the future of reconstructive surgery might look like. So before we start talking about history of plastic surgery, talking about your book, kind of give us a little bit of uh, your resume. Give us a little bit about your career. I know it's taken you a lot of different places. My career, well, my medical career started uh, in when I graduated from the University of Pennsylvania Medical School in 1965 and entered training in uh, surgery, first in general surgery and then in plastic surgery. My general surgery training was interrupted as many of us, actually as all of us, had during the Vietnam conflict, and I spent two years in Texas between 1967 and 1969, and uh, came back to Penn and finished training in both general surgery and plastic surgery, and finishing in uh, 1973. Then I stayed on the faculty at Penn all for my entire career, but practiced at um, a number of hospitals in the city. So I've been involved in the teaching and practicing plastic surgery for about 50 years before I retired from the operating room in 2015. And during that time, I I concentrated on a number of areas of plastic surgery. I was fortunate to be a senior resident in 1972 at Penn, and that was the beginning of what I call the golden decade of plastic surgery. Between 1972 and 1982, many things happened that impact uh, the practice of the surgery today, and all brand new things came into existence, such as craniofacial surgery for correcting major birth defects of the facial skeleton, microsurgery, repairing tiny blood vessels and nerves under a microscope. The uh, concept of the myocutaneous flap came into existence at that time where it was shown that the skin blood supply to survive came from the muscle beneath it and that the skin flaps could be transferred with the muscles intact. Also, uh, breast reconstruction came into that that era, first uh, on a delayed basis, and then we uh, contributed a lot on the development of immediate breast reconstruction so a woman could have her breast reconstructed at the time for mastectomy, and I think that's the biggest contribution clinically that I have made to plastic surgery. Even during that time, gender affirmation, uh, which used to be known as transgender surgery, now known as gender affirmation surgery, came into being, and uh, that was the 
golden decade. It was a great time to be in practice. Uh, I was at Pennsylvania Hospital during most of that time, and then obviously in the suburban mainline health at the end of that time where I spent the rest of my career. So tell me a little bit about the book. Is this something that had been a passion for you? Is this something you, when you were retired from the operating room, you looked for another project that was kind of connected to what you wanted to do? Uh, Is it something you'd always just kind of maybe put stories or ideas aside throughout your career? How did it come about? I've always had an interest in history, and I've had an interest in journalism. I worked my way through college and part of medical school as a newspaper reporter for hometown newspaper, 25,000 circulation. So I was used to writing and I like history. So I thought that at the end of my surgical career in 2015, I said, now what am I going to do? So I put together notes that I've taken over the years from interviews of people that I've done. But the book for the lay reader, if you will, the the everyday person, was a, a passion that I wanted to do because I know that many, many people think that plastic surgery is just uh, erasing wrinkles and uh, making breasts larger. And I wanted to show them that it was much more than that and uh, do it through a history whereby I use stories of plastic surgeons I have interviewed and have known and patients stories. So it runs as a, as a patient uh, colleague type uh, narrative from World War One until the present time, because especially started in World War One uh, in the trenches in France. And so I got I came up with the title from trenches to transplants, which brings us from the history of World War One to the founding of the specialty, basically as a specialty in America in 1921. And up to the present time of having face transplants from cadavers and hand transplants and even genital transplants from Afghanistan. So I want to start with the World War One, kind of the birth of modern plastic surgery. Like, what types of procedures are being done? Because trench warfare, we're talking nasty, nasty stuff on multiple levels. Like, so what are what are we talking about? What you know? And did people realize at the time? what they were doing as far as in the big picture, or was it just more trying to help people get through the day and get through things? The basis of warfare in World War One was definitely in the trenches, whereby the Allies were fighting the Germans, and they're both in trenches, and the mechanism of ballistics was such that you really stuck your head above the trench to try to shoot at the other trench. So there were many, many facial injuries and not so many body injuries at that point. So that if your whole body came out of the trench, obviously you were, you were subject to that. But most of it was facial injuries because they were sticking their heads up and getting hit in the face. So there were a lot of innovations that came about, mainly before, before the United States got into, into the war in 1917, the surgeons in England were bringing the soldiers back from the front after their, after their initial care and their emergency treatment in the field. We're bringing him back to England, and uh, there was a hospital developed called Queen Mary Hospital, which was in Sidcup in England. And a gentleman there by the name of Harold Gillies was running a facial reconstruction project. They treated about 5,000 troops for facial injuries at Sidcup, an enormous amount of patients. He developed a lot of early techniques so that that was the beginning of, of the whole specialty. 
It was done by surgeons who were generally trained in dentistry as well as medicine. From Philadelphia, Dr. Robert Ivey, who I had the privilege of interviewing when I was a resident and he was in his 90s, he told me about what it was like. He was a dentist who trained at Penn's Dental School and then went to medical school and had both degrees and was an oral surgeon and and a general surgeon over in France. The oral surgeons and the general surgeons after the war came back and then founded the specialty of plastic surgery, which combined both oral surgery and general surgery together. The procedures, were they just best guests at the time or were they based on other things in medicine that you thought would, they thought would be able to translate? I think the answer to that question is both. There were basic techniques that were around such as transferring skin from one part of the body to another was discovered before World War I. Some of the flaps that were developed go back as far as northern India between 1,000 and 800 years B.C., whereby an Indian plastic surgeon by the name of Shushutra took flaps from the forehead based on an artery in the, between the eyes and moved it down over the nose to cover tissues of the nose. So Some of the basic techniques were known even as early, really, as the Renaissance. In uh, 1597, a gentleman by the name of Tagliacozzi in Bologna, Italy, reconstructed facial defects by taking a flap of skin from the upper arm, leaving it attached to the arm so it had blood supply from the arm, moved it to the face, left it attached there, until it got blood supply from the face and strapped the arm up on the top of the head for three weeks. Huh, well, it did that. And some of these techniques have been around as techniques. The guys in World War II, the surgeons in World War II, used some of that basic knowledge, but but advanced it to cover bone and, and bring bone flaps in and bring in a reconstruction of the jaws, upper and lower. And Gillies, his big contribution was what was called a tubed flap. He would create a tube of tissue somewhere on the body that wasn't injured and attach it to another place, such as the arm. Say, for example, it started on the abdomen. He would tube the skin and the fat from the abdomen, leave it attached on the arm until it grew blood supply on the arm, and then move it to the face until it got blood supply on the face and then reconstruct the face with that. So flaps were really improved during World War I although the basic techniques were ancient. When does plastic surgery start to be looked at as something that can not just help correct an injury or something like that, but something that could enhance? When does it start to be looked at as that's a a possibility or something that we can utilize these tools and these techniques for? After the war, the, the surgeons who developed the specialty in America really looked at using techniques to improve appearance in many ways, starting with birth defects, for example, and working through injuries from accidents and then removal of tissue because of cancer. All of these things were were basic techniques that that were improved upon in the 20th century. The introduction of cosmetic surgery, if you will, came about in some ways before World War I uh, with some surgeons in the United States doing nose operations to correct deformities of the nose and to make them look better. And that has its history in syphilis, really, whereby uh, noses were deformed uh, by venereal disease and then it, then it morphed into cosmetic surgery to improve the appearance of the nose. 
surgery to as a, on an aesthetic basis, just done electively to improve appearance, came about in the in the 1920s, 1930s. What is the most popular procedure? The two categories. One is the most common thing, a, a simple lacerations that plastic surgeons suture every day. But that's not what you're getting at. What you're really looking at is operations that are common as procedures, as operative procedures. I think one of the most common is liposuction. That's a very common operation. And that most commonly, it probably rotates with breast enlargement as the most common operation which is done in the aesthetic world. Reconstructive procedures such as those done after trauma are common everywhere. And then um, uh, in the cosmetic world, liposuction, tummy tucks, body contouring, facelifts, nose reductions, and breast enlargements are the common procedures. This has been something you've studied, you've worked in, you've read your whole life. Putting the book together specifically, what was the most interesting slash surprising thing you learned? I think the most interesting thing that I did that I learned in the book was interviewing Dr. Joseph Murray, who was a plastic surgeon at Harvard. Dr. Murray did the first kidney transplant, which was done in 1954 after his experience at Valley Forge. And I'll get into that in another, because that's another thing that's important is the Valley Forge Army General Hospital. Dr. Murray uh, was the only plastic surgeon to win a Nobel Prize, and he got it by starting kidney transplantation. So the specialty has, in, has been involved in transplantation since the 1950s up until the present time. That's a lot of what I learned in, in the detail in putting the book together. In the history standpoint, Valley Forge General Hospital, which was located in uh, Phoenixville, just outside of Philadelphia, uh, was the center for plastic surgery, evacuation of patients to the United States in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And it served all of those wars some of the most interesting stuff that came about that I, that I learned about in researching this book was how they got together the idea that you could do a transplant. Those people who know a bit about medicine know that there's a, what we call rejection, that if you transplant a piece of tissue from one body to another, it's going to have a high chance of rejection just because of the immune response that comes in medicine. What they learned in World War II was that the more severely injured the patient was, his immune system was fighting the injury and not fighting so much the transplant. So they took temporary skin from deceased soldiers and transplanted it temporarily onto other soldiers. So they found out that the most severe injuries, the skin would last longer. So why wasn't it rejected? And the other thing they found out at Valley Forge was that those who were more genetically related, for example, if you're transplanting a skin from a deceased European heritage to another, it would last longer than if it went from an African-American to a Caucasian, for example, where it would be rejected quicker. So they got the idea that maybe this relationship means something. <laughs> and, uh, and the first kidney transplant was done between identical twins, so they didn't have to worry about the immune rejection phenomenon. We need to take a break. We will have more with Dr. R. Barrett Noon right after this. This is KYW News Radio in depth. And we are back on KYW News Radio in depth, continuing our conversation with Dr. R. Barrett Noon. Do you feel that plastic surgery gets the respect it deserves? And what I mean by that is, I think a lot of people, when they think of plastic surgery, they think of rich people getting facelifts and Botox and stuff like that. And it's kind of, dismissed as, well, it's elective surgery for rich people and 
you know, it's, it's shouldn't be something that's really taken seriously. But as we've discussed here, you know, you're talking things that really help people that are in bad shape or, you know, give people second chances at things. Do you think plastic surgery gets the respect it deserves overall? Usually by the general public, uh, usually not. And even in the medical profession, plastic surgery doesn't get the respect that it really should get, I think. So that's why I wrote the book, actually. When I retired, I uh, was having a dinner conversation with friends, and we were, and their children were there. One was a—they're uh, both in their 40s. They both were highly educated people, a, boy and a, a male and a female. I asked the guy, what's the first thing you think of when I say plastic surgery? He said, breasts. And so I asked the woman, what do you think? What's the first thing you think of? Botox. So I had to do something to show the public that this was more than boobs and Botox. <laughs> and someone said, why don't you call it more than boobs and Botox? But I thought that was a little bit not classy enough for from trenches to transplants. In the major medical centers such as Penn and Jeff and Temple and what have you, you will see in the main line, you will see major reconstructive procedures going on as well as cosmetic procedures. Was the process of putting the book together, was it enjoyable the entire time? Because I know I wrote a book many years ago, and no matter how much you enjoy the subject matter, for me, there are points it becomes a grind, and it becomes you become tired of reading your own stuff and going over the same paragraph over and over and waking up in the middle of the night thinking if you put a comma in somewhere you thought you would. Did you? Was it an enjoyable experience? There are three aspects of this. First was the research, and I've been doing that for a long time. That was in the in the bibliography, so there was a lot of research and a lot of articles that I used. That was fun. Interviewing the people that are in the book was a joy because most of these people are friends or colleagues that I've known a long time, and I wanted to get them into the uh, into the stories. The patient stories were uh, also enjoyable because although. Most of the patients are not identifiable in the book. They, you know, they've had, they have pseudonyms. I knew them well, and it was nice to write about them and talk about them. The hard part was the publishing. And you have, you have written a book, so you know what it's like to publish a book. That's the hard part. Uh, I spent a number of years researching how the best to approach the, uh, the publishing world. There are three levels of publication. One is the tr- traditional route whereby you need an agent, you go to the, one of the big publishing houses, and if they accept it, it takes years to get it in print. I wasn't sure I had that much time left <laughs> in my uh, time in this world. The second is a hybrid way, whereby you hire people to do part of the publishing and pay them to do it. The third is a self-publishing way, whereby you write the book and then go and self-publish it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, what have you. I was fortunate because uh, I knew the executives at the American Society of Plastic Surgeons pretty well. I'd been president of the organization. And I was asking them if I self-published, could I have a little position at the booth at the national meeting whereby we could do a book signing? They said, why don't you let us publish it? I said, that's great. So <laughs> so that's what happened with me. I, I went from self-publishing, basically, finally accepting that, to having our National Society publish it, and they did a great job. When you get to publishing, then it's editing, it's design, and the design is the cover, the inside, the inside photographs, all those things. And then 
as you know. You and nothing sucks the fun out of something like the lawyer. You, you have to have permission from yep. people. So the last thing that happened was that the attorneys got involved. And who, who took this photograph? Who took that photograph, et cetera? And nothing sucks the fun out of something like the lawyer. So, so, isn't that the truth? Oh, you know, some of my best friends are lawyers. But then again, they just do their job. They, they, suck the, they suck the fun right out of it. It was almost at the last minute. You know, the editors said, well, we got to run this by the lawyers. Oh, okay. Well, there are two issues in talking about patients. One is HIPAA. Mm-hmm. You had to have patient permission. I had those in. I had that anyway. But then it comes. Then it comes to the point of photographs. I learned something that I never knew. If a photograph is taken before 1926, it's fair use. You can use it anywhere. Photograph taken after 1926, you have to get permission from the patient, the family. If the patient's not alive, the family, etc., etc., etc. So that I had a series of photographs from a World War One major injured guy. And obviously, it start, they started in 1915, and then they went to 1925 when he was looking pretty good. And then they had one from from the late 30s where he looked spectacular when everything all healed back in, uh, back in England. Couldn't use the one from the late 30s, so we had to cut it off at the, <laughs> cut it off at the 1925 guy. <laughs> so you lived this, you studied the history— I'm curious, what's the next frontier for plastic surgery? What will the next 20 years be about in the field? What's the next breakthrough or the next thing that's going to turn heads, you think? Well, we have now the ability, technically, to do transplantation. We have the ability to, I mean, it's common that hearts and lungs and livers are transplanted. In plastic surgery, we have, now, we have now started to do hand transplants. And the argument comes up, is it worth it to put somebody on a life-threatening drug forever in order to get a hand? Well, it is to some people. And, for example, at Children's Hospital in 2015, my friend Scott Levin led a, led a team uh, that, that replanted two hands on a 7-year-old. And he was 7 years of age and lost his hands when he was 2 to an infection that destroyed his blood vessels. He had also lost his kidneys, and his kidneys were—one kidney was transplanted by his mother in order to save his life. So he had a transplanted kidney— so he was already immunosuppressed because of the kidney. So to get hands, he didn't have to go through that process. So that ethical issue was, was solved, and he got hands from a, uh, an unfortunate seven-year-old who died out of Pennsylvania, and the hands were trans- transferred here and replanted on, on him at age seven. And now he's uh, 14, playing baseball, playing a cello in a school orchestra, and doing just fine. And his hand grew. His hands grew with them, just like if they were they would be his normal hands. Wow. That stuff is remarkable, but it involves anti-rejection drugs, which can be a problem. And that goes along with faces. I think the future in transplantation is going to be if the immunologists and the researchers can find a way to solve the rejection phenomenon with something as simple as an aspirin. Or some drug, and I can see that happening. I can really see sometime in the future. The technical stuff is there. The the ability to do the procedures is there. The aesthetic things need a little revision here and there. 
But basically, transplantation is, is, I think, a future. The other part of the future is what we call tissue engineering. Researchers in the laboratory are able to take muscle from a, a person and mold it in a, in a laboratory dish into, a, into cartilage and then replace it back as a cartilage graft. If you're really thinking down the road, tissue engineering could get so good that you can actually make organs and tissue in the laboratory to use. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.